0: This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. This is how it's always been. Double Love is a podcast in which we explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join me, Anna Carey, and me, Karen Moynihan, as we revisit one of the maddest series of books ever written or ghostwritten. If you ever read about Elizabeth and Jessica, the perfect blonde Wakefield twins, then you might enjoy listening to us absolutely tearing them to shreds. Affectionately, of course. Of course. And even if you didn't, there's still plenty of drama, kidnapping, stolen boyfriends and school dances to entertain you. Find us on the Headstuff Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: They say twins are inseparable. But there is one strange tale of twins that is both heartbreaking and bizarre. And it is one that may reshape how you view the deep connection twins might have. This is something strange. The Silent Twins. Born on April 11th, 1963, June and Jennifer Gibbons were identical twins. Their parents were Caribbean immigrants, Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons, who moved from Barbados to the UK in the early 60s. Aubrey was a Royal Air Force technician, and while stationed at Aden, Yemen, Gloria had the twins overseas. June and Jennifer had two sisters, Greta and Rosie, and one brother, David. Soon after the birth of the twins, the family relocated to Haverford West, Wales. Right from their first interactions with each other in their crib, Gloria and Aubrey could see that June and Jennifer were incredibly close and it didn't take long for his connection to grow stronger and stronger. From a very early age, it became apparent to their parents that the twins would typically only communicate with each other and spoke to each other in a very fast version of Bajan Creole, an English-based Creole language with African and British influences. The twins would rarely talk to anyone else, and their parents would recall that if they directly addressed June, Jennifer would often reply, with June also replying for Jennifer. Some years later, June and Jennifer made a decision that they would never speak again, finding the lack of understanding of their speaking by their family and friends to be hurtful and insulting. In fact, by age 11, the twins were attending secondary school and they were bullied so mercilessly that every day they were let off from school five minutes before other students, in a bid to give them a head start from the bullies who would target them. Despite this traumatic school life, the twins were well behaved, and though they did not speak, teachers found them pleasant and attentive. The twins were then assessed by a child psychiatrist, who diagnosed them with having elective mutism. Elective mutism is a rare psychological disorder in which a person consistently fails to speak in certain situations or settings. Even though they are capable of speaking in other situations, The causes of elective mutism are not entirely understood, but it's believed to be a type of anxiety disorder. A child with selective mutism may feel extremely anxious or uncomfortable in certain social situations and may choose to remain silent as a coping mechanism. Because of this, the school eventually felt that they could not give the twins the support and care they needed, and by age 14, they had left the school and instead were attending Eastgate Center for Special Education. The staff at Eastgate did everything to get the girls to speak, and though some progress was made at times, the process was slow. However, their teacher, Kathy Arthur, noticed something strange with the twins. In the classroom, there was a two-way mirror, as Kathy would record teaching sessions with the twins. Her intent behind this would be to review the tape, as periodically, she would leave the room, and she wanted to see what the twins would do when they were alone. To her amazement, she would see the twins making seemingly unintelligible sounds to each other. But, when Kathy slowed down the recording, the sounds would suddenly sound like English. The girl's secret language at this point was a kind of hyper-sped-up English language. As the twins grew older, They became more and more isolated from society, and even their own family. As all they wanted and needed in life was each other. However, the twins did speak to Rosie, their younger sister, who shared a bedroom with them. Rosie herself remembers the large array of dolls that the twins amassed in their room with each doll being a member of one giant, loving family. In fact, June, Jennifer, and Rosie would record stories on cassette tapes, ongoing stories about the lives of their dolls. And all of this would go unnoticed by their parents and teachers for many, many years. Then, when Rosie was 11, and was moving into her own room, both June and Jennifer stopped talking to her. And this would ultimately break Rosie's heart. Now, with the last person outside of their duo now cut off from speaking to them, June and Jennifer were truly silent twins. Back in school, Their teacher, Kathy would often read letters from the twins. As in letters, they would be very much open to expressing their needs. In fact, both of the twins directly showed interest in being separated. As they felt that together, they relied on each other far too much. And the separation would force the girls to lead their own lives and become individuals. The school agreed to do this, but only if the girls would choose which one of them would stay and which one of them would go. This led to high tensions between the girls, but it was eventually agreed that June would be the sister that leaves Eastgate. But this upset June so much that the school staff would find her in a near catatonic state. Having stayed awake all night, and oftentimes, soiling herself. Kathy felt that, despite the girls' wishes of being separated, a real-life separation might lead to one of the girls taking their own lives. So the idea was ultimately scrapped. But this didn't stop the girls from having a need to be separated. And this is when the twins began to believe that the only way for one of them to live a life of freedom is if the other one died. They believed that a death would release the other one from this intense bond. At 16, the girls left Eastgate, and now more than ever, they retreated into a solitary life only watching the world through binoculars from their bedroom window. With the world now moving past them and in a bid to feel both connected to the world and to make their family proud, both June and Jennifer decided to become novelists and would spend all day, all evening, and all night typing away on their typewriters From their bedroom, three books were written. The first was Disco Mania by Jennifer, which told the story of a young woman who discovers that music at her local disco was making those attending the disco to become manically violent. Jennifer also wrote The Pugilist, a novel about a boy with a failing heart whose father transplants their pet dog's heart into the boy's body. Finally, there was the Pepsi-Cola Addict by June. A story about a young man who must choose between his love for Pepsi-Cola and Peggy, his schoolmate. Jennifer tried her very best to get Disco Mania and The Pugilist published. But she came up against nothing but rejection. June, on the other hand, managed to get the Pepsi-Cola Addict published through Vanity Press. But it is said that only 10 original copies from this 1982 release still exist in the world. The following is an excerpt from The Pepsi-Cola Addict by June Gibbons.
0: He had gone back to the beach and lay there until the stars in the inky sky revealed themselves. There was a big wind and the waves were driving up on his legs. Preston sauntered impulsively through the wet sand. Once or twice he glanced back at the sea and saw the dark water in resemblance of his desired Pepsi Cola. As if competing in a race, Preston impelled his feet and from the distant sea, he thought he heard the echo of Ryan's voice. Where are you going? With great remorse, he wondered why he had ever gone to Peggy's home at all. In bed that night, he could not sleep. He tried to erase Peggy from his mind. Eventually, he got up and sat through the still night in the kitchen, drinking five cans of Pepsi Cola. Tuesday afternoon. Preston was walking home drinking Pepsi. His red checked shirt was open and the sweat streaked down his chest. A tall, fair-haired girl, holding a book bag sidled past him. She turned voluntarily, a haunting scent lingering, and Preston realized it was Peggy. Her face was dominated by a thoughtful expression. They walked together. Then she suddenly stopped and stared at Preston. My dad had a visitor yesterday evening. I know it was me. Preston regarded her, and a strange hollowness crept into his stomach. You oughtn't to visit me no more, Preston. She slipped her hand into her hair in exasperation. We're through, okay? Why don't you just leave me alone? Preston, looking into her blue eyes, What's wrong with you, Peg? Why are you going with Kurt Miller? That is no concern of yours, she retorted. Just, I'd appreciate it if you don't come by again, okay?" She started to go. Wait, Peggy, she gazed intolerantly at Preston. I'm through with drinking Pepsi, you know. So, you're through? Hey, I don't care anymore, right? Her eyes drifted to Preston's hands, clasping two Pepsi-Cola cans. Come on, you don't really think I'm going to believe you dropped me because I drink this stuff, do you? Yeah, that's poison, Preston yelled, like You?
1: By 1981, the twins were 18 years old and now sick of their life of exile to their bedroom. They decided to meet up with two American men that they had met during their time in Eastgate. The boys were highly disturbed, and this is when the girls began experimenting with drugs and sex. Though their behavior was erratic to say the very least. This release led to the girls starting to speak again and to express themselves. During their stay at Eastgate, the American boys were kept away from the twins, as the staff always felt that they would be a terrible influence on the girls, who ultimately were very kind but impressionable. This toxic relationship the girls had with the boys would ultimately steer the Twins down a very dark path. And it all came to a head in October of 1981. After fantasizing about it for quite some time, the Twins decided to burn down a nearby tractor store. Breaking into the empty property, they then poured can after can of gasoline all over the ground and splashed it up against the walls. Then, once they were at a safe distance, they lit the gasoline and watched the building become engulfed in flames. That night, like everyone else in the town, they watched while firefighters battled against a raging inferno, overjoyed at the spectacle that they had just created. However, the girls did nothing to cover their tracks, which led to their prompt arrest. Once arrested, the twins were hastily diagnosed with being schizophrenics. And the picture that was painted of them were of two vicious arsonists that need to be taken off the streets. The staff at Eastgate who had watched over the twins when they were still children were horrified at this diagnosis and felt that it wasn't an accurate depiction of who and what the twins were and they were worried for what might happen to June and Jennifer now that they were both legally adults. Pleading guilty to their crimes of arson, the twins were transferred to Broadmoor Hospital. They were sentenced to an indefinite stay at Broadmoor and would only be released if and when they got better. This is when the darkest chapter of the twins' life would begin. Broadmoor Hospital is a high-security psychiatric hospital located in Berkshire, England. It was opened in 1963 as the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, and its dark history is closely tied to the treatment of mental illness and the criminal justice system in England. One of the most disturbing aspects of Broadmoor's history is the way in which patients were treated in the early years of its operation. The asylum was initially designed to house mentally ill criminals, and the conditions were harsh and brutal. Patients were often restrained with chains or straitjackets, and they were subjected to barbaric treatments such as cold water baths, electroshock therapy, and other forms of physical and mental abuse. Over the years, Broadmoor became known for housing some of the most notorious and dangerous criminals in England. The hospital was subject to a number of high-profile scandals, including the case of John Straffen, a serial killer who escaped from the hospital in 1952 and went on to murder two young girls. Throughout the 20th century, There were numerous reports of abuse and mistreatment at Broadmoor, and the hospital was criticized for its lack of transparency and accountability. In the 1980s, the hospital began to implement reforms, including better training for staff and increased patient involvement in treatment decisions. However, this ongoing reform still wouldn't make June and Jennifer stay at the hospital in any way bearable separated into two different wards and injected with strong tranquilizers on a weekly basis. The girls would recall that they would often walk around Broadmoor in a fuzzy haze, completely forgetting who they were or where they were going on that particular day. Though this did lead to boat girls speaking, they were dumbed down and subdued to the point where there were nothing more them zombies. In fact, due to the strong drugs that were given, the twins temporarily developed tardive dyskinesia, a condition which results in erratic involuntary body movements. In a bid to keep their sanity, the twins stayed in touch by writing letters to each other. And, as always, their letters were windows into their minds written in a highly expressive manner that they could never quite achieve through their seldom used voices. But, it was a long road to release. Despite being well behaved and openly speaking to everybody they came into contact with, year after year, the twins would get their request for early release turned down. Ten years would pass. Then, in 1993, the twins' request to be transferred to Caswell Clinic in Bridgend, a medium-security hospital, had been approved. With the promise of a slightly brighter future on the horizon, all was looking up until Jennifer became suddenly ill. She became drowsy during the morning before they left Broadmoor, and by later that night, she had died. Jennifer was 29 years old. The cause of her death was acute myocarditis, which is a sudden inflammation of the heart muscles. It is rarely fatal. Years later, it would be reported that before the end of their incarceration at Broadmoor, the twins had made a decision, a decision of which one of them would die. They allegedly agreed that Jennifer would die, allowing June to become free of their bond in the hopes that she could lead a normal life. And while acute myocarditis can certainly be fatal, many who heard the twins make this debt pact found the entire circumstances around Jennifer's death to be strange and unnerving. June would later say that Jennifer's death, though absolutely heartbreaking and shocking, felt like a tsunami washing over her, ridding her of her past. June would spend a further two years at the Caswell Clinic. After this, she was free. Since June was released, she has built a life for herself as an artist and a writer. She now often collaborates with the English experimental music group, Current 93, and also alongside them is currently hard at work at releasing Jennifer's unpublished novel, Discomania, as well as a new publication of her novel, The Pepsi Cola Addict. Since her incarceration, she has lived her life to the fullest, as she sees this as a gift from Jennifer who is passing, meant that June could perhaps finally become the person she was always meant to be. say twins are inseparable. But do some twins have a connection that we currently do not understand? And were June and Jennifer Gibbons prisoners to this unexplainable and unspeakable bond? This has been something strange. Thank you for listening to Something Strange. Please consider following Something Strange on Twitter, which is at A Strange Pod. We're also on both Instagram and TikTok at Something Strange Pod. Or perhaps if you'd like to email me directly, you can contact me at Something Strange pod at gmail.com. Something Strange is written, produced, and performed by me, Dennis Murphy.